0: Hobran, back at Serenity House today with another guest. Heidi's with us today. How's it going, Heidi?
1: It's going pretty good. I'm grateful you guys asked me to share. we're so. yeah,
0: excited
2: to uh, excited to have you. I know we've tried a uh, tried a few scheduling a few times, and now we're 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 here rocking. So
1: life
2: happens when you uh, get clean. Yeah, yeah. When you're uh, you're pretty busy, right?
1: I am. I'm a very busy human being. Um, very productive. I've got a wife. I've got a kid. Job in college. In college, yeah. I work for a nonprofit. Um, working on some certifications on top of that. So yeah, my plate's pretty darn full.
2: Mhm. Yeah. 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 Heidi and I uh, take some classes together, and one of our classes we've been uh, we've been in the same group, so we've been working on group projects together lately. So we've been getting to know each other there, and we've also gotten to present together. You know, we gave some presentations on some on some like what schools of psychology, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So that's been uh, been fun. Um. So, tell us a little bit about just a little bit about yourself. Let the let the listeners get a little uh, idea of kind of who you are.
1: Okay. So I am um, born and raised in Alaska or on the Oregon coast primarily. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. You spent you spent some years in the Portland area, right?
1: Yeah. Okay. Primarily though, on, um, you know Oregon coast, okay. Portland area. I that's where I graduated high school and where I had a lot of drug use. Okay. So, um, yeah um, I'm a mom to a spunky little Mm. seven-year-old. We're in the process of adopting her. Oh, wow. Um, I'm married to someone else who's also in long-term recovery.
3: Okay.
1: I am the oldest of three. My dad passed away about a year ago, so that was pretty rough. Yeah. I got clean when I was uh, 20 years old. Really? Yeah. 20? I was 20. And did you, you've stayed? I relapsed after nine months, so my clean date is 726 of 08. 08?
2: 08. So that's like, what, 11 years now? Almost. Almost 11 years. I'm almost 11. Wow. That's a long time.
1: It's a very long time.
2: Um, so you you started this 11-year clean span when you were around 21? 21. Geez, good job.
1: Yeah, well, I come from a family of... Doesn't um, seem you
2: hear that too much. No, I no. mean, maybe you do, but we have
1: Well, when I, when I got into the 12-step huh. community, there were not people that, um, that were as young as I was getting clean. They were in their late 20s or sure. early 30s. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty hard to identify. And so now that, you know, I, I see it a lot more, we have people that come in that are 17, 18, 19, 20, and in this area, anyways. I know bigger multi- metropolitan areas, it's really common. But um, it kind of gives me the ability to share, like, hey, if I can do it, you can do it. Um, you know, so. You can know,
2: probably identify in some of those ways. Yeah.
1: And yeah.
2: At least to help them through the. I would imagine you could relate to them in ways that others can. That that would be beneficial to
1: them in some ways. Most definitely, especially uh-huh. when when um, I like to talk about, you know, that that addict part of myself being that little voice that says things like, "Well, you've never drank at a bar, so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you can go drink at a bar and just that fantasy getting caught up in all those things that." I never went through as like normal society's rite of passage Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a a huge thing that that younger people get caught up in as Mm -hmm. well you know justifying their use because they didn't drink in a bar Mm -hmm. or this didn't happen or that didn't happen and Mm -hmm. so being able to share like well yeah maybe that didn't happen but there were some other things that did happen
2: right it's interesting you bring up the rite of passage uh idea because for the most part i would say in most of our recordings a lot of them we have um you know maybe looking back maybe a little too much focus on some real individual factors you know Mm -hmm. and yeah we would you know acknowledge that the individuals have the disease of addiction right um however we also see a big cultural aspect uh the last recording we did there was uh you know this work hard play hard mentality that was in the culture and if you weren't playing hard that you were you know other you were lesser you were different etc and at this point it's not just a work hard player hard. you see this kind of throughout you know the rite of passage of 21 and going to the bar you know so it's just infiltrating and as that was you it seems as if maybe not like a heavy influence for you to continue uh in substance abuse as it wasn't you got clean stayed clean um but it still was you know in influence and it was seems to be you know at times maybe something you think of
1: yeah I mean there's a piece of grief to it I wasn't aware of it um, until just a couple years ago I actually acknowledged it that you know I grieved over the fact that I didn't um, partake in some of those things I mean for instance yesterday in class just listening to a couple people talk about going and having beers at the brewery I've never went and sampled beer at the brewery before. And mm-hmm. I was like, huh, that would be really fun. And then, you yeah. know, of course, for me, I have to think it all the way through. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I'm like, that would not end well for me or for the people that I was with.
2: Maybe this is a recovery thing, but we've he- we've heard from people say that they've played that tape forward. Is that a common saying or something yeah. in recovery? you got
1: to play it forward you or something? Ha- There's that disconnect between... Um, Action, consequence, action, consequence, Um, whether it's a positive consequence or a negative consequence, you know, I'm trying not, I'm trying really hard not to put the whole counselor spin on it, Mm -hmm. but honestly, for me, that's kind of where I had to go in order to keep my recovery. Mm -hmm. I had to look at the science behind it. I had to look at the reasons why I have this disease, Um, and, you know, so making that shift from that, that... That primal limbic brain to that, you know, thought process, conscious decision-making mm-hmm. Is literally been the catalyst that I've gone through and I've seen so many other people gone through in order to stay clean and to have a good life.
4: Is it just kind of like knowing your behavior in the future? You're yeah. like, theoretically, I could, but I know me and... Is that going to happen sort of thing? Or is it just knowing better beforehand so you're never in the situation?
1: I don't know how much of it is knowing better beforehand, um, for me anyways. I Mm -hmm. came from a family where um, extreme drug use and alcohol use. Um, My dad was a fisherman, so he was gone nine months out of the year most of the time. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom who, for the first few years of my life, pretty much gave me a coloring book and some crayons and that was my life um so i don't know what normal is mm-hmm. and so i really have to stop and think a lot before i make decisions sure mm-hmm.
2: yeah. yeah like is my you have to question your perspective have to
1: question everything yeah. it's yeah. very exhausting that is hard yeah, it's very exhausting, and, and you know, there's that, that spiritual aspect where I have to rely on something bigger than myself,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which takes away some of that, that struggle. Um, I definitely don't struggle with, with this um, new way of living my life, but there are parts and pieces, I think like everyone's life, mm-hmm. that are difficult. Mm-hmm. So My addiction doesn't define who I am as a person. It is an aspect of who I am, and it's part of who I am, but it's not me.
2: It's interesting you say that. You know, I think uh, I've thought about that in the past a little bit and just thought that whether good or bad, I didn't evaluate its final status or whatever, but it does seem that addiction, for those who are going to identify as, you know, suffering from addiction, does in, at times at least, or for periods of their lives, really define who they are. Yeah. You know, and I think, I'm not trying to state necessarily what the cause is whatever, but I don't think like a, hi, I'm Steve and I'm an addict, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I don't think that's that far away from saying, hi, I'm the addict Steve, you know, I mean, it starts to all get maybe a little bit mixed up, and so what... Why is it important that it does that? It doesn't identify you. Is it just that you're bigger than that? You yourself, are you are like more multidimensional than like a single.
1: Most definitely, yeah. I know in early recovery for me, I had to Take that just on. hone in on that. Mm-hmm. I just had to hone in on the fact that I was an addict. I had to.
3: Mm-hmm. It
1: had to be drilled into my brain. I had to drill it in my brain, and so my life re- was literally going to meetings being around people that were um, sound of mind, so sober, so not using alcohol, not using marijuana, not using any sort of mood or mind-altering substance except for caffeine and nicotine because those are unfortunately a huge part of the subculture today of um, people who are trying to live a clean and sober life. Sure. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, I definitely partake in those, so I have no say as far as some of those things are concerned. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's for a while there, my identity was that I was an addict, and that was the only piece that I really could identify with. Um, I didn't even know what I liked. I didn't know Mm -hmm. who I was, and so that was the starting point to figure out who I am and those different parts and pieces that make me who I am. But I had to... I had to come to a point eventually mm-hmm. where I realized that that's just a piece of who I am. It's not who I am.
2: Mm-hmm. So, I read some. Uh, it's really interesting that you do say that because I did read some research uh, in a class one time, uh, a community psychology class, and really it was to show that when you're going into different communities and different cultures, that your framework just isn't, your perspective just isn't going to work necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I was reading was they were studying in a in an Alaska Native community. I'm not sure exactly which one, and obviously that would that would matter if you were going to really investigate the ins and outs of it. But for the sake of the story, they're researching uh, some. I think like community values, community practices, both in the community as well as how that individuals are influencing their community, et cetera. And one of the questions they asked an Alaska Native person was essentially so what is your recovery like today? And they say, and that was, it just didn't even register because it just was not a part of them because they had, essentially, I would say this person kind of had a, and this culture kind of had a perspective like you're kind of having now and it was kind of like, I did that. You know, I I used to do these things. I used to drink a lot and it was problematic and then I recovered and now I'm not I'm not, hi, I'm this, I'm an addict, I'm, I'm this person, I'm Alaska Native, I have, these are my, this is my family members, these are my communities, I, this is how I live my life, they just don't, it's not a perpetual label of like, Mm -hmm. hi, I'm this person and I'm an addict and I'm consistently going to, I'm doing all these recovery things because I'm, because I am an addict, you know, it was like, it just became a, it wasn't a soul identifier. Right it's interesting
1: well and and you know the, the fact that I, I do have a position as a substance abuse counselor I, I spend all day drilling that into people's head that you know this isn't this doesn't define you but this is where you're at right now mm-hmm. you have to look at this if mm-hmm. you want
2: if you want to have more dimensions than this yeah because frankly for the last number of years perhaps, this has been. For the most part, your life engaging yeah. in active addiction has consumed your life, yeah. um, and as it, and as it one day does not, mm-hmm. you will have more aspects of you. But at this point, if you want those aspects to develop, really, yeah. you have to focus on this one that has been consuming your life. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. It's mm-hmm.
4: like being aware of, of reality and what the truth is, and I mean, I've heard a few people say that they're like they, um, their addiction is a form of escape from reality. So staring at that sounds like the first step to kind of realizing what's going on.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, you know. um, I most certainly had, it had to be drilled in my head that I'm not more powerful than this disease. Mm. And that it's Mm. super sneaky. And Mm -hmm. if I'm not careful, it will bite me. Mm. Um, What do they
2: say in the recovery community that it's cunning or something? Cunning,
1: baffling, and powerful. Cunning,
2: baffling, and powerful. And it will
1: swallow you whole if you let it.
4: Yeah. So how do you how do you stop from from feeling weak because you struggle?
1: I have something that's way bigger than me that takes care of me, um, mm. you know. And and I am I am not more powerful than this disease. And so mm. um, I guess it's in that surrender, in that weakness, that I I find that grace and that faith and mm. that strength to move forward. And you know I don't say these things. Um, I don't mean these things to sound in a Christian context, however, the 12 steps were designed around a Christian concept, so a lot of the slogans do come from a lot of those concepts. You know, individually, I I did struggle with that in the early recovery, um, that was a huge struggle, mainly because, you know, kind of backing up to my childhood a little bit. Um, my mother is also an adult child of an alcoholic I'm an adult I mean it's just this huge general generational thing in my family and um, you're breaking it my mom and my dad wanted me to both me and my brother to both have a really good education so they put us in Catholic school as children and we were not Catholic and so there's a lot of discrimination um, a lot of things that were done that were quite horrible to a six-year-old so not only did I have an unsafe environment at home, I had an unsafe environment at school. During and some
2: very formative and as we're definitely learning more and more sensitive years. Yeah, yeah. extremely.
1: Um, I um, I didn't have anywhere safe. Yeah. And um, you know, I would hear the nuns say, you know, that they were sisters of God, and and I decided that if they were sisters of God, then I wanted nothing to do with that God. So at about 6, I pretty much turned my back on the whole idea of God. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was really, that was something I really struggled with in early recovery. I was um, finding forgiveness um, for the people, not necessarily the higher power, but for the people. And so I use, when I say God today, I refer to that as good orderly direction. (laughs) Um, And, you know. I guess I kind of have a, a metaphysical energy. I call it woo-woo idea of a higher power today, sure. but um, mm-hmm. it's definitely bigger than I am, and it's definitely bigger than my disease. And so that's really where I get a lot of that faith and that grace from, um, in order to stay clean and to, you know, help other people and not get jaded. Mm-hmm. So it's that seems
0: the feeling small. I guess uh, like that humble, that, that humbling, you know what I mean? Whether, because in a lot of our recovery stories, you know, it's, it's, you know, in recovery it seems important to continue staying humble, but there's always that experience, that original experience that humbles you. Because it is like, you know, that stepping back and I'm not more than this. And you hear in this like, well, I thought I could control it. Mm-hmm. Or like, I didn't think like, I wasn't going to let it Swallow me or consume my life, you know, and then without you really even being cognizant of it, it does. And it's and now, like, having that in the back of your mind that you have to remain humble and that you aren't more powerful than your disease, you know, is really big. I think that's hard.
1: It is really hard. Um, It's a really hard concept. It was for me to wrap my head around. I had some really good examples as a child when my mom was about. When I was about six or seven, right around that time period, my mom was introduced to a 12-step program, and um, she stayed. As a result of that, I, as a small child, I got dragged to meetings with her, you know, poor, you know, my mom didn't have access to childcare, things like that, so um, my brother and I were actually 18 months apart in age, and so we would get <laughs> dragged with her to meetings. And um, I always say this, and, and if you've been to a meeting, great. And if you haven't been to a meeting, then um, this is still kind of a visual. I was the kid in, in, the, in the back of the meeting with a coloring book and a crayon. And it was very apparent to me that my mom needed those meetings like it was medicine. Like if she didn't have them, I was my life was going to be horrible. And so wow. I, I, from a young age, I started listening. I listened a lot, and there is a really vivid memory I have, I don't know if it was Christmas or Thanksgiving, it was one of those holidays, and um, we had just gotten in the car from my mom being at a meeting, and I looked at my mom and I was like, Mom, I don't ever want to be an alcoholic. She was like, why? And I was like, because I don't want to have to go to those meetings. She was like, why? I'm like, because... You go to a lot of those meetings, (laughs) you know, Um, and so that was kind of where that, that resistance idea was planted, and I don't know where it came from, you know, and that's, that was the big, one of the big baffling pieces for me.
2: I mean, it's a lot, right? Yeah. Sounds like staying engaged is sometimes a demanding task.
1: Right? I mean, even at six, I realized. That yeah, that was yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Actually, at six this years old, sucks, <laughs> Yeah,
3: you know? this is yeah. a lot.
1: So you know, I grew up.
0: It's a lot to contemplate at six, honestly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, even just like the sheer fact that you go there and at six years old, like you said, a climbing book in the crayon At this, this is a place where you're probably bored.
3: Super bored. Oh yeah. You okay. know
0: what I mean? Just bored. But you got to be there because of this, this, and this. Like, that's just a lot going on.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, you know, um, like before, I was that kid that had a coloring book and crayon. Even at the, at, the, at the kitchen table in our house, I mean, I was always listening. I was a very observant child to the point where people thought that I might have a learning disability because I was so incredibly shy that I wouldn't even talk. I mean deathly afraid of people. Deathly afraid of people. Um, for a number of years I was even afraid of my own father and that was partly due because he was never home. So, um, yeah, men scared the crap out of me. Um, I was surrounded by women a lot, my grandmother, my mom, my aunt. Of course they were all drinking. So, yeah, that's that's where I got a lot of my models from, was from those women in my yeah, it was definitely, definitely something different when my mom started to get sober and go to 12-step meetings. Um, Fast-forwarding a little bit, um, my mom had, you know, gained some time in recovery, and you know, the other aspect of that was I got to see what her life was like in recovery and how that changed our household, and some of the things that changed were that she would have um, women come over and, and she would work 12 steps with them and it was really cool to see that bond. And so I always kind of idolized that bond of, of having, seeing people have that kind of connection, seeing people come from the depths of hell and the light coming on. Mm. And seeing something different and I watched a lot of that growing up too. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't all bad. I got mm-hmm. to see the positive right. because of recovery.
3: Yeah.
1: Before it had even, you know, it was manifesting in my life before I had even started to have a problem with it, at least that I noticed. So kind of what had happened, um, my parents got a divorce when I was about nine my little brother, um, he struggled. He struggles with with addiction also, and, and he's... He's
2: 18 months younger or 18 months older? 18
1: months younger, and he's still in his addiction off sure. and on. Um, but um, he'd started to get into some trouble, so him and I, you know, we were buds. I always tell him, like, you're my very first best friend.
2: Sure. Mm-hmm. You
1: know, and yeah. um, and when he got into some trouble... I kind of broke off from that because I spent a lot of time trying to get other people's attention and love through um, getting a grade, being the perfect child, um, a lot of perfectionism, a lot of um, codependency, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of things I've had to work on in recovery, things that I still do today, um, issues that I have when I feel that someone is. Frustrated with me or irritated with me. I, I still most of the time shut down. Really? Which is really difficult at work, too. Mm-hmm. That's something that I struggle with. But it's,
3: mm-hmm.
1: it's part of learning. Um, so long story short, we moved. And we moved to the Oregon coast, Astoria, Oregon. And <clears throat>
3: seventh
1: grade hit. And um, my eating got with a lot of control. I'd say that was where my addiction started. and hmm. it started with food. Sure. Food was my big comfort. Yeah. Um, I was, like I said before, super shy, so I didn't have hardly any friends. It was really hard for me to make friends. So food was my comfort.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I met a friend of mine who was like, she was like the bad girl. Um, she'd lost her virginity in the seventh grade she was like the taboo girl Mm -hmm. and of course there was like a little posse of them and I was like I could I can hang with this this Mm -hmm. is cool like they're like the misfits they're the outcasts and they accepted me and Mm -hmm. they stood up for me and they helped me you know and um those were the people I was with and it's funny because they would always call me the nun because they would like do something how could you do that, that's so horrible, like go smoke a cigarette behind the school or something, like I never broke rules, I thought that was like the worst thing in the world you could possibly do was break rules. And (laughs) so, I mean my curiosity, my curiosity with, with using it started at that point. Yeah, I hadn't picked up and picked up a drink or a drug. And my freshman year in high school, I was 15 and I always say that that was the day because, um, I skipped class, which had never happened. I blame this, of course, all on a, a guy that was a junior, and I just thought he was so cute, and <laughs> he was one of my best friend's <laughs> older brother, so there was that, too. Mm, dang. Right? I don't know. <laughs> go big or go home. Um, and... You know, it was like the fat, pudgy, shy girl who hung out with like the really hot, slutty girls. I mean, I'm, I don't know how else to put it except for like that. And I'm I... Trying to picture that. <laughs> I, I skipped school, I skipped class, and there was this place that was called The Hill. And it was literally a fence, and then the school, and then on the other side of the fence was private property. And so the cool kids would go up there and smoke cigarettes and smoke pot and whatever noise. So, yeah. yeah, so I went to the hill and um, that was the first time I smoked, I smoked pot. And I remember just feeling this rush of excitement. Like, oh my gosh, my life is about to change. Mm-hmm. Finally, I have arrived. Things are happening.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the next day I took all of my babysitting money and... You know, it was interesting how I kind of set myself up for all this. I already knew all the connections. I already knew all the people that I could get all my resources from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like I, my addict had masterminded it beforehand. Yeah, before, and yeah. It was so insidious, mm-hmm. and that's that insidious part. That's where that really started to play in. And, um, yeah, the next day I took all my money, got somebody to buy me a kegger, and... From that moment
2: on, I was. You just went and
1: bought a keg?
2: Yeah. Dang, you went all out. Um, you didn't start it pretty n- fast.
1: No, I started, and there was no. Um, yeah. There was no. There was no like progression. No, this was, was what we no call in
2: and... uh, the abnormal psych test acute onset. Shush,
1: <laughs> shush.
2: We take abnormal psychology <laughs> together. Yeah.
1: It was zero to hundred.
2: Real quick.
4: It's like, well, if you can't be perfect and you broke one rule, what's the point anymore? Yeah. You I can't like, identify with perfection yeah. if you're not mm-hmm. perfect. I so. It was like sweet. It, it was
1: it. on like Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. Um You know, I drank. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't black out. I didn't. It's brown out. Browning out is like where it's hazy, but mm-hmm. you still remember. You remember
2: some parts, not the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, um,
1: so those things didn't happen. Um, but what did happen was the continual use mm-hmm. of marijuana and alcohol. And I started smoking cigarettes at that point because I wanted to be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, So a lot
2: of
4: pressures. I've, oh yeah. I bet they celebrated when you smoked, the nun oh, smoking you, on the oh, hill. Man, they must have yeah. sang your praises and hoisted you up. Right,
1: well, exactly. And that was where a lot of that excitement came from. Yeah. I'm like, accepted, yeah. they love me. You know, and, yeah. and they already and looking back on it, they already did love and accept me for mm-hmm. who I am. Um, there's something about addiction where I've never found that amount of acceptance that I did from those people. Mm-hmm. And some of it was a false facade for yeah. sure. Um but I still have a lot of those friends today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, um, two of those people are still my best friends. I still see them. Mm-hmm. And they're not addicts.
3: Right. They're right. They're not addicts. Right. Which yeah. totally
1: baffles my mind. I'm the I'm like one of like four or five of those people that I still keep in contact today with good old Facebook who has an addiction problem. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so, like, it's, I'm in awe of it
0: sometimes. It is kind of mind-boggling, because I like, similar experiences. You know, not all the way through, but, like, with friends like that, you know what I mean? Like, for me, it felt so much more different, you know what I mean? And they go to college, and they do, like, the drinking thing and hang out, and then all of a sudden, they're, like, wear suits and got jobs, and, like, they're normal humans, you know what I mean? You're, like, but it didn't seem so normal, like... When we were doing that stuff in high school, you know what I mean, or doing that stuff whenever, like it didn't, didn't ever see. Like I just thought they were like me, you know. It turns out like they're normal, bro. Like you kind of, like, they're just normal people. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting. Normal
1: people. I I mean, normal is like a setting on the dryer, but in this context, yes, they they do not suffer. Purposes. I like that. That's
2: cool. Normal is a setting on the dryer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's cool.
1: Um, so, yeah, that was that was like the jumping off point into my addiction, and a lot of horrible things happened. Um, and you know, the first time I round out slash blacked out, and I don't how, know how much of this is trauma and me um, and my brain. Um, there's a scientific, there's a, a term for it, and we just took a test on it, you'd think I remember. It's like... You should uh, see the
0: steam coming out of Eric's ears know, right now, waiting. trying to think of that. Drug. Oh, it's I know what it is. Lazy. You're
1: talking about diathesis? No, I'm talking about um, amnesia, but the type where you your brain purposely... Oh, had, dissociative? Ah, uh, dissociative amnesia, mm-hmm. yeah. Some, mm. So um, the first time <laughs> I brown out and had a black eye I was raped. Oh, wow. And I was 16 wow. years old at the time. And huh. I stopped talking. After mm. that. I didn't mm. talk for like three months, um, and it was pretty horrible. Like there were rumors going around the school that I was like making it up, and oh it God. didn't happen, mm-hmm. and all these horrible things. And wow. I shut down completely, wow. and um, depression kicked in really bad. And I've always had issues with depression from a young age. Um, Thinking about when I was six, I mean, even back then I was depressed and lonely. Mm-hmm. Six year olds that's like so sad. Yeah, well,
4: it's yeah. like to, to celebrate finally feeling in with the crowd and then to be betrayed like that like, right. have something horrible happen to you and then a bunch of people just blame you, like blaming right. the victim kind of well, thing. Like, and the
1: other part of that, too is that guy sh- was pretty freaking sick, he was, mm-hmm. a, he was pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, um, so that happened and I was 16 and my mom decided that she was going to get remarried and we moved to Scappoose, Oregon, which is 20 minutes outside of Portland. So I went from a coastal community, I went from an environment where I was always at the beach, around the beach. That was, I mean, the beach is where I I talk to my, my higher power, that's nature. Um, and and I get a lot of that calming aspect from the beach. So for me, moving inland, was just that piece alone was horrible. And how long had you
2: lived in Astoria?
1: Um, I lived in Astoria for about four Astoria. years. Astoria,
2: okay. Um,
1: and right before that, I had lived in, in Waco, Washington.
2: And so you've I moved, moved a little bit. I mm-hmm. moved a little bit. And like is that, that's a little bit years. hard, right?
1: It wasn't because... I was always at the beach, surrounded by the beach. I mean, one of the houses I lived in, literally you crossed the street and you were on the bay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing childhood. Okay. I always joke about how my brother and I survived like playing unsupervised by the ocean all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I have a great respect for the ocean.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And uh, so yeah all my anchors. I wear lots of yeah, anchors and yeah. lots of hooks and lots of things, and that's oh, that's actually a big part of my identity mm-hmm. that I get from where I've grown up and, and the heritage that I have. In my sure. Family. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Inland to a you know tiny little town called Scapoose, Oregon, and that just happened to be where my um, mom had grown up and gone to high school, and my dad had grown up and. Gone you said pretty school. small town, yeah.
2: Small. Like how small?
1: um kenai small okay so and
2: you had been living in Ast- astoria
1: astoria. Yeah. astoria oregon and yeah. that was about the same population i've always lived in small towns okay um so moving you know not having that beach aspect or that that place to go to kind of recenter and and get back with with my god was definitely definitely hard for me um I had moved with my mom and my stepfather um, at that time. You know, I have a sister that's nine years younger than me. And so I spent a lot of time raising her also. Um, and my, my life did change hugely. I went to a school where I didn't know anybody. Um, I didn't have any friends. So just kind of
2: you were exactly how old again 16 that's hard yeah, that's rough that's yeah. really hard
1: i went to four different high schools
2: i moved a little bit growing up and i yeah aaron and i were actually just talking about i hated it right. like during some like hard times like those are some sometimes are hard to move some ages are yeah i think i moved when i was uh like, once when I was going into seventh grade, so, like, what, 12 or 13, I don't know, 12? I don't know what grade that is, what age that is exactly, but, like, at 12 or something, and then moved again when I was, like, a freshman in high school, so about, like, 13, like, 15? No, (laughs) dude, my bad, but, yeah, like, 12, and then again at 15, like, those were both, like, those are tough ages. I don't know. Yeah, those are really bias, hard ages to
3: move
0: around. You know, especially when you're you're just really start trying to find yourself. Your peer group, as a, not even your peer group, but just yourself, like who you are. Getting you're acclimated
2: just, to your situation.
0: Yes, very much so. I mean, just kind of getting through adolescence in yeah, general, yeah. and then having all like this, this change is a very difficult yeah. situation. I would think it's.
1: It was really, really difficult. Um, I just threw myself into academics. I took a bunch of AP courses. And that was the other thing. I really dumbed myself down a lot in high school because I was afraid that if I hung out with the people that I was hanging out with, and I I was super smart, and I threw myself into that stuff, that I would be rejected. You know? Um, And I just couldn't really identify with a lot of people that I hung out with on that level. So I just kind of hid that part of who I was for a really long time. Um that with also the fact that when I was younger, you know, all the nuns and stuff telling me that I must be like retarded because I wouldn't talk, you know. I kind of believed some of that. I made mm. myself kind of believe that I really wasn't capable of of comprehending things or doing certain things. So that was one of the big hurdles that I had to walk through when i got into recovery was going back to school and doing better and um, that's actually been a huge a huge thing that i've had to overcome time and time again throughout my life so far Um, and i'm sure i don't know about anyone else but i know that there's a lot of people out there who struggle with that um you know am i smart enough am i pretty enough am i friendly enough and so, for a while, there wasn't doing any drugs or drinking because I didn't really have access to them. I pretty much just stayed in my room, and that was when the internet had kind of picked up a little bit, and um, there was like the whole chatting, like the online chatting oh, that AOL. got really big. yeah AOL. Like, AOL. yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> mister. that was tight. So
1: I literally like became a hermit. I, I went bet. to school, I went to school, <laughs> and I. Uh, I stayed in my room and I was on the computer all what the time. What was your
2: username? Do you remember?
1: No. I remember
2: my cousin. Uh, she had her username as Baller Babe. Yeah, yeah Baller Babe. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. But. Those usernames are funny, man. You look back and like,
0: oh, whatever, those.
2: Yeah. Oh man, that. I'm having some like hardcore <laughs> nostalgia with that messenger, man. I feel yeah. like. I feel like I asked out several girls over Messenger. Oh Lord. I think I might have got it accepted once, See your cousin... <laughs> no!
3: <laughs> oh.
2: oh, my gosh. Cobran. Cobran. Come on, he Dude, said Dude, that's that. a weird situation. Come on, that'd man. That'd be a weird situation.
1: All right. Anyway, enough anyway. enough with like the cousin. That'd be a weird yeah. situation.
2: But, no, seriously. So, you, you're you chatting it up. Yeah,
1: so I was chatting it up. Um, my dad lived in the town over, which was, like, 15 minutes away. It's kind of, like, the distance from Kenai to Saldana. like the same it's it's really weird how the setup is here is quite similar to to that part of my life Mm -hmm. um and then also only being 20 minutes outside of portland Mm -hmm. so my dad had started dating a woman and she had a son that was my age and then a daughter that was a year younger than me and you know the first time i went over there they were smoking weed and it was just like the son
2: and
3: daughter
1: Yeah, I was like, yes, finally, I can get stoned. I can avoid this reality that I'm living in. These people are my people, you know, and I literally just became attached to her at the hip. Like we were inseparable. We did everything together. And that is kind of how I found my way back into what I had been missing, you know, because One of the big things for me is if I wasn't using some sort of substance in my body, I quite literally would be in such a bad depression that I didn't want to live. You know, I'd started um, self-mutilating, I'd started cutting myself um, off and on from the time I was 15 till, I don't know, 17? It was... There was a chunk of time there where, you know, now learning that, you know, those same self-mutilating behaviors actually, um, you use the same neural pathways as when you use drugs, so it makes sense to me now, looking back on it, why I did some of those things. Hmm. And it wasn't to to hurt myself as far as I, to commit suicide, but because I just didn't want to feel the, the emotional pain that I felt. Um, I was still super shy... Um, still really chubby. Um you know, I'd never really had besides the incident where I'd blacked out, I'd never really had any um sort of like relationships, like you know, boyfriends, nothing like that. And so I got to hang out with her and, and she did hang out with guys and she she hung out with everybody and it was like, Cool, maybe I can get in with these people. So, um, eventually things got pretty rough between my mother and I. A lot of the teenager, you know, I hate you, you're ruining my life, blah, blah, blah. So I moved in with my dad, and my dad was pretty pretty awesome. He was going to night school, and he had quit fishing at that point. Um, he was going to night school to be a plumber, and, and his basic rule was, just pass all your classes and go to class, and other than that, you know, Don't do any hard drugs, but I don't care if you smoke pot and I don't care if you drink on the weekends. I was like, okay, cool. So it kind of became a little, like, housewife for my dad, which was weird. Um, I would cook and clean and, you know, do that stuff and and just kind of, I was stoned every day, you know. Um, I started stealing money from my dad. I would actually sneak off with his ATM bank card and by this time I'd gotten my driver's license and I would take it up to the ATM cause I learned his pin and I would just pull 20 bucks off here, 40 bucks off there and my parents were always really horrible with money anyway so they never really paid attention um, to that sort of thing And and so that was kind of one way that I supplied my habit. The other way was I'd gotten a part-time job as a sandwich artist at
3: Subway. Nice. Yes.
1: So I would do that on certain days. I'd met another girl that lived right up the street from me. She's two years younger than me, and I'd actually met her through my little brother. And she's my very best friend in the entire world. In fact, we just talked last night. Um, Oh, wow. I... She's... She's just... She's my rock. Um, She's a little bit wilder than I was, for sure. Loud mouth, very vocal. And then there's me, who's like super shy. So complete opposites in that regard. Um, My use continued. Somehow, um, I don't know how, I um, I had started to make frequent trips down to Astoria to the friends that I had down there. And so I would, you know, go down there once a month and just get obliterated and um, started s- just like sleeping around down there with the same person, and it, things just got really crazy really quickly. Um,
2: it pretty. It sounds like you went from like not really doing a lot of drugs, to doing, uh, and then to pretty well just being stoned every day. Yeah, and, I had. I mean, once the. Yeah. yeah,
1: I had the free. I was given permission to finally mm-hmm. not be so perfect. Is how I felt. Um, I didn't have all eyes watching me, and so it was like I could breathe, and I had that pressure released to kind of not have to feel all that that anxiety hmm. and depression and dread that I had. So um, I, I graduated high school. Um, right before I graduated high school, um, I got into ecstasy, and um, I dabbled a little bit with cocaine, but it wasn't really – It was just like whenever it was available. Um, I tried shrooms a couple times, I tried opiates a couple times, um, but it wasn't anything that I really got into. It was pretty much drinking and smoking weed. Mm -hmm. And um, So I graduated high school and that summer I decided that I was gonna go to school and become a certified nursing assistant because they made decent money. And, you know, long story short, I had a a grandfather who was um, paralyzed most of my childhood, and so I had spent a lot of time in nursing homes and around the elderly, and I just love, I love old people, they're so cool. They got good stories. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do, I wanted to become a nurse. Um, So, graduated high school, Barely, like barely, um, and I remember the first time I tried to not do drugs, I thought I was going to get UA'd, so I was like, oh gosh, I got to make it a whole month without smoking pot, how am I going to do this, and I just remember it being like the worst month of my life. Um, I went to school, I got my CNA license, I started working at the nursing home that i had gotten my license at. And I started smoking pot again Um, shortly after that I moved in with a friend of mine and the conditions were not very great Um, it was like nine of us in this tiny little two-bedroom apartment they had like an infestation of fleas and my legs were covered in flea bites. Like, I, and it was just so gross. And people were doing drugs left and right. And I was working as a CNA. And then I was also doing in home care. And, um.
2: But you were on a regular basis mm-hmm. doing some hard drugs to excess.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um. I, uh,.
2: At this point, are you getting concerned? You're like, my no. life is... No,
1: because I still had a job. Sure, yeah.
2: And you had a place to stay, even and though it's a little place bit to stay. less than ideal.
1: And I had a place to stay. And I thought, you know, it would kind of be... It would be... I, I know everybody I work with, and I party with some of these people. I could just start selling at work. Mm-hmm. So I was taking care of people under the influence. Um, and, uh... I started doing things. I started blacking out. Um, at one point, I slept with my best friend's boyfriend. And I did that off and on. Classic. I did things that I wasn't proud of. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: S- seems like some of your values that you had once clung to were starting to. Slip away, yeah, and probably it, quickly,
1: yeah, really quickly. Um, I bought a Ford Mustang off the lot, um, mainly because one of the guys told me that I wasn't, I couldn't do it, and I was like, Oh, yeah, like that's just how I am. You tell me I can't do something, watch me. Like, I'm that, I'm yeah, you don't ever tell me I can't do something. Like, I'm whew, it's not good when you tell me I can't do something, so. Um, eventually I moved out of that place that I was living. I met this guy. Um, we started dating, and I got my own apartment. We were together for, like, six months. He started pushing me around, and, uh, there was some domestic violence in there. And then I was like, all right, I'm just going to move back in with my friends. And at this point, we'd gotten our own house, and you know it was just pure chaos it was just just crazy chaos and we had a party one night this is kind of where it came to a head um we we had had a party one night and I woke up the next morning and people I'm sure you've heard of the term coyote ugly where you wake up and you're like oh my god what did I do last night who are you get out of my room I don't even know you and I just came to, and there's beer bottles all over the place. I mean, just, it was just trashed. I looked like trash. The person I was sleeping with looked like trash. It just was bad. And Sorry
2: to that person if you <laughs> ever hear this.
1: <laughs>
2: and I... I, we're I sure you're, We're sure yeah. you're at least a 7 out of 10 these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Facebook. Um, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> oh,
3: well... Um,
1: I I ran to the bathroom it was my moment of clarity I ran to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I was like who are you Mm. like who are you like you are disgusting like I don't even know who you are and I'd had a dream that night Um, I'm not gonna get into the dream but basically I'd seen myself from the outside like dead like I'd overdosed and died and I woke up out of that in a panic and so that was kind of like a, that, that moment of clarity of like, hey, like literally I, I do believe that was my higher power like shaking me like you how do you not see what's going on around you? And um, I called my aunt who lived in Sterling. and at the time my aunt had like 11 or 12 years sober and um, she actually got sober on my couch when I was about 10 growing up. So it was kind of it's really cool to see how this is all full Mm -hmm. circled because she got my mom sober yeah and she went back out and then my mom got her sober Mm. and so here I am at 20 years old calling her and my exact words to her were it was my life is spinning out of control I need help Mm. and she said how much money do you have and I said I have enough for a plane ticket so I bought a plane ticket and the plane ticket was a month out and that month I continued to drink. I was up to almost a half gallon of whiskey a day. Dang. Um, You're drinking a lot. Yeah, I. Uh, I had had, you know, during this time period when all this was going on, I had had, I had been in another um, relationship with somebody, off and on that was extremely toxic, and I always equated him with safety. He was my safe place, and I spent a lot of time with him. He was very possessive, um, very controlling, um, pretty much isolated me from any friends that I had currently had. Um, It was just really toxic, and I hated myself. Um, I hated everything about me, and so I tried to kill myself. Um, I walked... I tried to walk through four lanes of highway traffic in the pouring down rain in the dark. And I couldn't get any of the cars to hit me. It was like they were all just barely missing me. And I don't understand how that... I, I couldn't explain it. Anyways, I didn't die. Um, I, uh... Had gotten in a few screaming ra- matches with my father at that point because I was just staying wherever I could. I didn't really have a stable home. You at didn't that go point. back
2: and stay with your friends.
1: No, okay. I left.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I had my clothes were in the trunk of my car. I lived in my car essentially. Um, there was a couple times where wow, I So
2: just in the last, it sounds like a month. In, in like the last it was, in from two, sounds like in like what a few months. A year. A year. You go from. Having a house with your friends, not ideal, but having a house with your friends and having a job and obtaining a certificate Mm -hmm. to living in your car, drinking excessively, and attempting to kill yourself. Yeah. I mean, it just, your addiction escalated really, really fast. Yeah,
1: and that was really my bottom. Um, I had been to the ER several times because my kidneys were failing Mm -hmm. because all I was drinking was alcohol. Mm-hmm. I wasn't drinking anything else. So my body was starting to shut down at that point, too. Mm. Um, so emotionally, physically, mentally, I was done. Um, I made it to Alaska, barely. Um, my clean date at that time was 11-11 of 07, which is interesting because my wife's birthday is it's 11-11. 12, 12 years ago, almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved in with my aunt, and that's really where my sobriety began. Um, I didn't tell her how bad the problem was that I had, or what I was going, what was really going on. Um, I just pretty much told her that I wanted to go to a meeting with her every day um, because I'd been exposed to AA. I knew, mm-hmm. I knew, I, I kind of knew, yeah, I mean, knew. Yeah, I knew. I knew what the I knew what the motions looked like. I just didn't know what it meant. Sure. Um, I just knew that I didn't want to ever feel the way that I had felt um, that last month of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and so I started going to meetings with her. I didn't talk for the first month I was at meetings. Um, She, you know, helped me get a job. And and I um, eventually got a job at the hospital as a CNA.
2: And at this point, what are you thinking? You know, your first month thinking, of sobriety, because you've discussed earlier this idea that you've had to grieve. Yeah, I'm a th- lot of lost things. I'm thinking. Are I- you thinking like, oh sh- dang, dude, like?
1: I'm thinking I can go back to it. Of- oh, okay. okay. I'm thinking I can go back to it, and that manage it. It was just the people that I was sure. around, and the type of environment but now that you know i can get it i can be stable again and have a good job and because i was never a problem of saving up the money functionally on the outside i always looked like i was functioning just fine always i was very very secretive okay you were functioning okay i was functioning okay comparatively to the rest of my family right i was you were doing
2: great i was doing great compared to the rest
1: of my family yeah So, um,
2: but if you were to be honest and I'm not, uh, if you were to look back now and you saw you, like you ran into yourself, you today ran into yourself then you might've thought like, this person's having a little bit of a hard time functioning these days. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, so I didn't talk the first month I was at meetings, um, Mm -hmm. I didn't really feel I mean, are anything. You, are you
2: thinking like I got to get this under control? Yep.
1: I just got to control so this. I got to learn how
2: to master this, but not master my addiction so that I can be sober and live a fulfilling life, but so that I can I need to master this issue so that I can manage it well and live a fulfilling life. Yeah, because fun life, exciting.
1: My entire life thinking. from the time my mom went to AA meetings, I said I'm never going to be an alcoholic. Mhm. I had always said I'm never going to be an alcoholic. So at that point... And
2: now you're, hi, I'm Heidi, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, dang.
1: Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was like, no. It, you know, I was still comparing the fact that I was 20, mm-hmm. that this didn't happen to me, that didn't happen to me. I didn't get a DUI. I've never been in handcuffs I was a
2: teenager. Like, yeah. my behavior was not incredibly abnormal compared to some other teenage behavior yeah. or, or, you know, early teen behavior. Yeah.
3: Right.
1: Yeah. So, I did good for about 9 months. I got a sponsor. Um I didn't really work the steps though. It sure. was it was all really mediocre a lot of it was. I was sponsor going for was the social the steps. Yeah, I was going for the social aspect. Um super promiscuous, just anything I could do to not feel again. Just there's no drugs in my body at that point. So Yeah. <clears throat> That was pretty interesting time For sure mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I turned 21 Sober Grieving Grieving Yeah, yeah. I bought um, A bunch of Sparkling apple cider Because they come in glass yeah, like on Bottles th- Like yeah. on a Thanksgiving And maybe. I would just <laughs> pop the lid off And chug the Ooh. apple cider And I just yeah, Grieved. I got a mm-hmm. tattoo on my 21st birthday, like jailhouse style, almost. I mean, like at home kit, like
3: nice.
1: oh, on my Not inner. Ang- that hurt so bad. Yeah. Oh man! But yeah, I did some really just wonky stuff because I was grieving. Mm-hmm. Exactly because I was. I was like, oh, that rite of passage wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I made it about nine months. Moved out of my aunt's. Um, right before I moved out of my aunts I uh was staying with a friend of mine and she had this great idea that she was somewhere to get pot and oh at this point I had decided I was gonna move back to Oregon.
2: i bought the plane ticket. And your aunt says this is bad.
1: Yeah, she was like, No, why why would you move back? Oh, my excuse, no, it was just I had fun, it was a great nine months, you know, things aren't just aren't working out, which is a total lie.
3: Mm hmm.
1: Um, I had even bought my plane ticket already. And my best friend, my rock, she would actually moved up here with me. Because I was like, oh, I'm going to get her sober, too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to, this is going to be awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. no. No, it doesn't work. Um, anyway, so I decide that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get stoned. Would be That's a good idea. Because mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave anyway, so... Yeah, I don't need these people. I don't need to go to do any of this. Yeah, sure, let's do it. So I get ripped off the first bag. That should have been like my, my first indicator that things were not going to work out the way I thought they were going to work out. Um, I finally get what I'm looking for, and I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of details, but basically right before I do it, I look down and there's somebody in the fellowship calling my phone. And I've got everything in my hand and I'm looking at my phone and I'm looking at it. Looking at my phone and I'm looking at it. I'm looking at my phone. And I remember mm-hmm. being like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. That was it. <sighs> fuck it. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. And so really for me that like the whole thing when we talk about the relapse happens way before we pick up.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah. That was so apparent yeah. to
1: me thinking you had back on it now. I decided yeah. a month ago that yeah. I was gonna relapse. Mm-hmm. It was literally just a ticking time bomb for when it was gonna happen. So that night, I um, hmm. here's zero to 60 once again. Mm-hmm. That night, I was stoned. I went and got alcohol. Uh, my friend had given me a bunch of benzos and whatever else. I just took the whole handful, put was it in my mouth. Was your friend
2: using pretty often?
1: No. No, she this wasn't. This friend was
2: just kind of like a non, maybe, no, maybe an was addict, an, maybe not. No, she's but, an addict. Okay, but she was but she was just kind of thinking, well, oh, we let's kind of like we went party a little bit. We,
1: we kind of went back out together. To sure. like, we were both really. kind of like, eh, or, yeah, let's just do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're
3: and getting stoned, yeah. She,
1: it was just, it was bad.
3: It was yeah. all bad.
1: I mean, zero to 100 once again, mm-hmm. but it, I could tell that it had progressed because it had blacked out that night. At the first... Right out the gate, what do you got? I want it. I mean, I I can't even tell you what I took that night. Um, Woke up the next day, slept with another freaking guy. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me right now. Mm -hmm. Who does this? People don't do this. This is not normal stuff. Um, And I went to a meeting that day, and I said, "That's fast." I scared myself. Mm -hmm. Scared myself straight on that one. I uh, went to a meeting, and so uh, my clean date's been the same ever since. Wow,
2: mm. seven twenty-six of got, eight. I don't, I, I don't know, but you got you turned that around quick. I was
1: like, it, nope.
2: That could have been like a five-year runner.
1: It could have been, yeah.
2: It was a one day,
1: it was a one wow. dayer But I honestly, that was enough. You were just like, no. I, I saw, I, I saw it. Yeah. 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 I didn't get on the plane either. Nice. Didn't get on the plane. Yeah. Um, three weeks later, the person that I'm married to now, and I hooked up, which we're not going to go into that, um, female relationship, I don't know where I decided that that was going to happen, but that happened.
2: Right. Oh, cause you, you, wait, all your relationships before then had been heteronormal? Yep. Like that? Heteronormal? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: It's a term. Yep. <laughs> really? Um, okay. So, wow. So
2: you were like, whoa. It, oh, you were having a crisis. Uh, a mm-hmm. crisis.
3: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. A, a
1: little bit. Okay. Sorry if you ever listen to this significant other, you were crisis upon <laughs> a time. Not anymore. Yeah. Um. Anyway, we've so. <laughs> were,
2: yeah, we've adjusted. We've
1: adjusted. That was a phase. It's not a phase Well, anymore. it wasn't a phase. <laughs> yeah, well, all right. Long I mean, phase. You're part so of the situation. I did hear a lot yeah, of that, though. I did. it. Oh, it's just a phase. You're just going through a phase. Well, I'm right. like, mm. yeah. uh, So early okay. recovery this time around for me, um, I worked the steps one through 12. I had a couple different sponsors. I, I just couldn't find somebody that was okay with the fact that I was with a female. Really?
2: Who, Even in, is that a thing, Not huh? at that time. In AA then? I guess that's, um, yeah, that's 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah.
1: Um, I couldn't find somebody that was a super good fit. Plus, I was there was still a lot of bull malarkey that I wasn't willing to really own up to.
2: Really? Yeah. yeah. Not surprising. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. early on yeah a lot of coming to a right? growth process yeah. Right? yeah
1: um i moved that,
2: in uh, kind of off topic but that does even 10 years ago kind of surprised me that it, you couldn't find an aa person that would be willing not or one at least that i easily. liked because you know
1: not one that i liked that had what i wanted because they say when you find a sponsor you want to find somebody that has certain qualities that you know they have what you want i mean mm-hmm. if you want to get really shallow and they have like the The nice car and all that like sure whatever gets you to like start working on yourself please by all means do it for me i was looking for a motherly figure because at that point my mom had had 20 years sober and she went back out dang Mm. my mom was gone out of the picture really um
2: after 20 years yeah
1: and i i just backing up just a little bit since you know you brought up grief i um my great-grandmother had, both of them had passed away the first month of my initial recovery. Mm-hmm. So there was that. And then, so really all, the only person I had to turn to in my family dynamic that was sober, that really understood, was my grandfather. So he was a huge, huge part my first couple of years of sobriety. Um, my dad was off and on. He was remarried at that point, And he was, decided to move to Kodiak. So he wasn't that far away. Um, Kind
2: of expensive to get to Kodiak, though.
1: Yeah. So looking for that motherly figure was extremely important, and it was difficult in the beginning, um, especially with everything that had been going on. It was kind of like a huge snowball of my life that, as I had known it, was completely gone all over again. And so um, I did what I always do. I jumped into work. I would go to meetings all day, and then I would work all night. I was working three jobs at that point. Um, I had managed to save up enough money to get my own apartment. And shortly in between there, um, I decided it was a good idea to get in a relationship with someone that had three years of recovery already under their belt. Not to mention the fact that it was a female. Okay. Um, Yeah. So that was new? That was definitely Uh,
2: new. Is a general kind of a not rule, but isn't it suggested, like in a lot of A A N A communities, that one simply have a relationship with a plant in a caretaker way for the first year? In layman's and terms. And if they can, and if they can keep that plant from death, yeah, that they may be able to, may be ready for a relationship with a human being.
1: In an ideal world, sure, if we were, like, watching 28 Days Later and that's how they do it. Like, sure. if you can envision, like, the sad, pathetic little bulldog. Um, but in reality, it's one of the biggest struggles that I've seen in recovery and that I've faced in recovery. Because... I have an addictive personality and mm-hmm. not just the drugs and all that that was just like something that I used to fix myself mm-hmm. fix what I thought was broken and the reality is that I didn't know what a healthy friendship let alone a healthy relationship looked like so I was constantly seeking out some sort of semblance of that in any mm-hmm. way I could f- Fill that God-sized hole, as they say. It's kind of a crude way of looking at it, but in reality, that's essentially what we call 13-stepping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's 12 steps, but really, like, you know. And it's super, even today, it's super taboo and, like, frowned upon if somebody has over a year to date somebody that has less than a year. They right. They consider it predatory.
2: Sure. Huh.
1: Um <coughs> But I I believe today, looking at it, I mean, I sought her out just as much as she sought me out, whether it was, whether I was oblivious to it at that point or not, and whether she was more observant of it. It doesn't really matter. But yes, they say don't do that because you're not focusing on your recovery. You're, in fact, taking that person and turning that person into your higher power instead of that drug or whatever else you're trying to replace it with. So that made, that made life difficult, because now I was in a relationship with someone and at the same time I was trying to be honest about my behaviors. Um, I moved in with her after just a very short period of time um, and we got a dog. So yeah, there was some of that. <laughs>
3: uh,
1: that didn't work out very well. Um, the my, just
2: kind of moving so fast. Yeah.
1: Um, my grandfather was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And there was kind of this um, un, this area that wasn't talked about in my family. I was the only one that worked in the medical field and so anytime he anytime anyone was sick, it was always call Heidi. And so that was kind of like an unspoken thing between him and I, because we did talk a lot. But if when it, and when it got to that point, because he had stage four, when it got to that point, I was to be in Oregon and like providing hospice care. Hmm. Um, I had about, you know, I had, a quite, I had a really good relationship with him at that point. And it was things on my mother's end were starting to get really unstable for my little sister. She's nine years younger than I am. And um,
2: so she was like 11. Yeah. Yeah. So vulnerable age. I, and your mom's had relapsed and has somewhat been escalating, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: So That's I right. volunteered. My wife, well, At that point, my girlfriend and I volunteered to take my sister for the summer because I was stable enough to do that, and I owed her that amend um, because I did some very unsafe things in my use, like driving under the influence with her in the car, Sure, um, things that I I wasn't proud of, and so, you know, I felt that I could give her that stability that she needed at that point. Um, I had right around a year at that point clean, so... I took her that summer, and from that point on until she actually graduated high school, I had her about every six months for at least a month to two months at a time.
2: For seven years. Uh Uh-huh. That's a long time. Yeah. You guys built kind of a mother-daughter relationship over that time.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, And And Tanya, yeah, my wife, even, my, my wife was even, you know, very close to my sister, too, you know, um, we both took on that motherly role. Um,
4: Do you think having that uh, responsibility helped you with recovery, or was it just kind of an extra thing that
1: I valued the fact that she looked up to me mm. and that I could be that I could be that rock for her that she needed. Yeah, because um, I'd spent a lot of time in my childhood trying to model that for my little brother, and um, so that wasn't really anything new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I prided myself a lot on being like that perfect sister, the perfect daughter, the perfect granddaughter. I mean, I'm the oldest grandchild on both sides of my family, the oldest great grandchild on both sides of my family, and the only girl for like nine years. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of pressure um, mm-hmm. to be perfect and to do perfect things. So, Where did that
2: come from, though? Do you think? Just like. Um, because I, I mean, I don't know, sure. but it, it wasn't like, it was mostly coming from yourself, I would imagine.
1: Mm. I mean, yeah. your mom doesn't, from I what felt, it sounds like, I she wasn't super. I felt that there was an expectation to hit, to, to hit the bar, because neither one of my parents graduated high school, for one. I watched what my dad did, and, and it was hard work. And, right, you know, I watched my mom struggle with trying to own a business and not necessarily having the skills to do so, and. That coupled with the fact that I was never going to be an alcoholic.
2: Sure, okay. You know, so I really right. tried
1: to to hit that next bar. And I modeled so a lot So your pressures
2: that. may have been more to, like, avoid failure than they were yeah. to achieve perfection.
1: The whole do better than I did.
0: Sure. Oh, yeah.
1: Sure. Um, so, yeah. so I had my sister Sorry. off and on. And um, I was going to meetings, but I still wasn't really engaged. I had worked maybe the first three steps, the first few years of recovery, and at about the three-year mark, um, it was kind of like I didn't know who I was. Mm. You know, I was 23-ish, 24, and my relationship was pretty rocky at that point with my significant other, and... Um, I had an older lady in the program that, you know, I would talk to on a regular basis. um, Partly due because I had decided that I wanted to get more involved in meetings. So I'd started to make coffee um, for a particular meeting two nights a week. And so there was that requirement, that accountability piece of like, you have to be at this meeting because people are counting on you. And heaven forbid I let somebody down. So I actually got to use that. To my advantage, and a big
2: part of recovery is service, right? Uh, I mean, that's like one of the huge. key elements, right?
1: It's huge. You have to have that piece. At least I have to, because um, sometimes that kind of what do you think of, that does? It teaches you. I how, mean, it sounds
2: good, right? How but to, what is it? What do you think it does? Uh, what, what do you think it
1: actually? teaches you? Integrity. Okay. It teaches you um, about how to function in society. These are actually the rules of society. It's not the other way around. You don't get to dictate what the rules of society are.
2: Hmm. So, Oh, so it's more like serve, you have to learn to serve on other people's terms, yeah. on society's terms. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of it.
1: Well, and, you know, the 12th step, the way that it's laid out is it's, it's not meant to be a government. It's not governmental, but there's basic principles and foundations mm-hmm. that there's that expectation there Mm -hmm. and it's an an easy place where they're very loving and forgiving if you mess up sure and you're going to mess up they expect you to because they know that aspect of who you are that addictive aspect and they have that piece of experience that you can't get in the outside world and so that's really a great place to practice being a productive member of society. Um, and so really that's kind of the huge piece that, that kept me initially those first few years of recovery, because I I hadn't worked the steps completely, and I hadn't really built a relationship with a sponsor, even though I had put on that facade that I was.
2: I know there's probably not a, like a prescription necessarily, or like a one box fits all kind of uh, for each person that are that is doing the steps, mm-hmm. but generally you're moving a little bit faster than a step a year right
1: oh yeah that's I'm not trying
2: to put you down yeah, I'm no, trying no, 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 to no. say yeah, that yeah. it sounds like you were maybe <laughs> dragging your feet in some yeah. to some extent well
1: they say some people say we grow at the rate of pain so our level of willingness is measured by um, the amount of pain we're in and so I mean one of the big sayings is, yeah, is well, um, cool. when the pain of staying the same outweighs the pain of change then you'll change and I <laughs> life wasn't painful enough. Sure. I, I was coasting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when it became painful enough, um, hm. things shifted. Um, I just I had made yet again another decision that I needed to go a step further and actually take it more seriously than I had before. So another layer of my recovery had been unraveled per se.
4: Do you think there could have been another way beside, you know, it's like having your back against the wall, right?
1: So I tried that. I tried that. I was like, I'm going to prove you guys wrong. You don't have to just grow with the rate of pain. Mm-hmm. And so um, I did a, a, a step, and um, as I worked that step, I realized that I was actually in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Even yeah. though, you know, my life, I don't feel that my life is unmanageable when I actually start to apply the principles of the step or the principles of the steps I do realize that there's still more more things that don't quite sit right with my life and um,
4: so it wasn't just like coasting it was also kind of ignoring what reality was and then when you work through the step you're like oh wait this actually does kind of suck
1: well and on some level we all ignore reality oh definitely no I'm I'm not saying (laughs) that I don't I I totally understand that, that yeah the difference is, is that I see is as I don't want to grow up. Yeah. I never figured out how to grow up. And so I'm constantly at every phase, essentially stomping my fists on the high chair going, this isn't fair. Mm-hmm. How come I have to do this and no one else does? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, they kind of have a blueprint already for life. And you are a really slow learner at this. So, you know. Um... Yeah, so three years into that, that's that's kind of where I was at at that point. Um, I was still working at the hospital as a CNA. Um, I had started college, I was going to college full-time to go to school for nursing, and I had applied for the nursing program, and I had applied for that darn program like four times, four years in a row. It's
2: competitive. It's hard.
1: I could not get in, mm-hmm. and so I, you know, and i spent so much time basing my self-worth on advancement in jobs, and so that was a huge hurdle I had to look at, that, you know, maybe this just wasn't what I was supposed to be doing, and um, I got married at that point,
2: so your relationship that was rocky maybe wasn't as rocky or were you thinking if I get married this'll smooth things out?
1: Um no, it was
2: So I don't think it's uncommon.
1: It's not uncommon, but I mean we didn't have kids or anything. So I think I think that was a piece of it was I think that getting married and, like, actually solidifying that I wasn't going anywhere because I was the one that was super flighty.
2: Oh, okay. That makes um, sense.
1: was really kind of how some of that spurred, but also the fact that, like, I married my best friend. Quite literally. Um, and I just kind of learned a little bit about this in class the other day. So, um... Yeah, so I married my best friend, and it was really cool because it was, like, the first time people had actually showed up for me. Um,
2: oh, at your wedding?
1: Yeah. My dad showed up. My sister was there. Everybody that I wanted to be there was, that could be there, was there. So that was really cool. That is cool. Yeah. Um,
2: I've never been married. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've been married twice to the same person. It's pretty cool. Um, the two weddings. Yeah.
2: We'll, take, like, we'll, okay. we'll get okay.
1: there. But um, basically, right, you know, right during that that time point, that 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 time, I also purchased my first home. So I was 24. I purchased my first home in my name only. Uh-huh. Um, just because of like some legality issues with credit, anyways.
3: Mm-hmm. I
1: was able to purchase yeah, the home. So I like purchased that. it and. It was like I had this vision of just having this happy home full of children, white picket fence, dream job. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this Mm -hmm. illusion that... um,
2: Health insurance.
1: I mean, all those things, like the American dream. Yeah. I mean, the house that I purchased, it was five bedrooms, three bathrooms, 2,500 square feet. Wow,
3: balling. Plenty of room for kids.
1: Like, I always wanted to be a mom. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was still rocking and rolling with recovery, going to meetings um, three days a week. I had, at this point, progressed through working all 12 steps, and I had started to sponsor women in the program. Um,
2: So as you're taking on um, more responsibility, mm -hmm. you know, sponsoring people, um, and really it seems like getting into the steps... What were some of the rewards, and what were some of like the, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, costs? You know, what were the costs of that? Hard, right?
1: Yeah. So, because we had such a big house, and there was only one, one and a half rooms that were occupied. Eventually, my sister got her own room, like it was her room, because she was there so much. You know, it's just second. (coughs) It was just second home. It's more like her first home, though, really. Um. I would we would open up our home to people in early recovery and mm-hmm. let them come live with us. And I think in the five years that we did that, we probably had like 20 or 30 addicts, recovering addicts come through and stay with us. Um, that
2: had to have been be hard.
1: Very hard. Because you
2: got to maintain some pretty strict boundaries at times, right?
1: Talk about a learning and curve. And they're getting pushed mm-hmm. often, right? Yeah. Um, Some of the mistakes I made was sponsoring women that lived with me. Sure. Um, What were some other mistakes? Not setting clear enough boundaries Mm -hmm. with clear enough consequences. Mm -hmm. That's all learning stuff, and that really was super beneficial to my recovery. Um, Not being so worried about what people thought about me, what my outsides looked like, because these people were living with me, so they really got the nitty-gritty, this is who Heidi is. You know, Mm -mm. Um, yeah. So that was some of the pluses and the costs to it. Um, Also, sponsoring women. Like in the beginning, I thought I was really gonna mess them up. Oh gosh, Mm -hmm. can I really do this? I'm gonna screw them up. And I remember my sponsor sitting down with me and being like, "Look, Heidi, they're already messed up. It's pretty hard to mess somebody up more than they're already messed up, and you're just working the twelve steps with them." You're not their banker. You're not their taxi. You're, you're not there to just listen to them whine and moan about their problems. You're there to work 12 steps. That's it. If a friendship grows, that's great. If it doesn't, that happens too. Like, it's okay. There doesn't have to be a bunch of pressure on you to fix them or their problems, which was really different for me.
4: Do you think it was a... Uh Easier in recovery, having those people there where you're working with them 12 steps, they really depend on you. Uh, did that really keep you honest, or were you already kind of in your recovery kind of past that? Where it's like,
1: so what that did for me it was it catapulted me into continuing to work with my sponsor because I can't give something right away yeah, that I don't have. Yeah. I can't teach someone something if I don't, if I have, if it hasn't been taught to me. Right. And, and you probably, part of that.
2: I would imagine you got to start to empathize with a sponsor who has reluctant sponsees,
1: mm-hmm. right?
2: You're sponsoring someone, and they're kind of reluctant, and you're getting frustrated. Yeah, you're like, and so
1: i my sponsor. This is how my
2: sponsor feels when yeah, I'm dragging my beat, I'm right? i sponsor, yeah. I'm like,
1: what the heck do I do with this person? And she's uh, like, listen, it's not your program. It's their program. Sure. What was it like for you? Did you do everything? Right. Did you do X, Y, and Z perfectly? I'm like, well, no, but, you know, my expectations of others is... A little bit much (laughs) sometimes. So those are some of the things that really helped me. But I still wasn't super engaged. I mean, I was going to meetings, but I wasn't. It still wasn't really enough. So a friend of mine had gone on a road trip. I did. I went on road trips with women in the program. We go to Anchorage and go to, to to visit other fellowships and things like that kind of weird i kind of feel like sometimes it sounds like churchy stuff sounds culty mm-hmm. it's not a cult <laughs> i'm not even getting into that um
2: a little like i'm just kidding I no know. i'm totally kidding i actually uh, i took a social psych class and uh looked up uh was gonna write a paper on uh like cults and everything and really like there's a lot of like culty elements to a lot of things in life mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like just like uh Uh, my prof said that he views like cults like on a group level kind of like how he views like mental illness on like an individual level like most people show some characteristics of some kind of like mental disorder on to some degree throughout their life you know like maybe they're a Mm -hmm. little bit depressed at times maybe they're a little bit whatever you know Mm -hmm. whereas some groups at times you know have some kind of like somewhere on the spectrum of like Okay, I'm getting some, like, pretty strong group vibes here, really, even. But, right. uh, like, the word cult has just been, like, branded so much more outside of, like, what it maybe really, yeah. like, is meant to, you know, portray. Um, I don't know. People's, so, no. Uh, yeah. But I get what you're saying. You're like, oh, we're going to go see this chapter yeah. in this chapter, I mean, you guys, you are, like, you have a strong, like, you're, it's a strong group, you mm-hmm. have similar beliefs and habits, some yeah. certain customs, almost some, like, rituals at times, I mean, in, in as much as, like,
3: Same. you have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so,
2: sure, I mean, there's some strong group vibes, but, I mean. You don't have some, like, charismatic leader that wants you to donate all your money and move to the hills and, yeah. like, and drink some John's Kool-Aid. <laughs> right. Yeah. And right? And that's
1: why the service aspect is so important. <laughs> right. Because you have to not only work the 12 steps, but you have to work what we call the 12 traditions. Then there's also the 12 concepts. Hmm. I don't know if you guys, if anyone has mentioned the 12 concepts.
3: Oh. Uh-huh. I don't think so. Um,
1: no. Anyway, so... Um, a friend of mine had had said to me that, that she noticed that I was I gave off a lot of anxiety around groups of women, just groups of people and it was true like I still super socially awkward um, you know, being that really shy kid and you take the drugs away and I don't have that buffer anymore yeah. and I still mm-hmm. haven't figured out how to get how to interact with people right. like right. i'm not one of those i don't want to talk about the weather i could care less about the weather so what do you talk about and i could only talk about recovery with one person for so long before i'm bored and i don't want to talk to you anymore maybe it sounds totally jerkish but that's me
2: you should join crossfit then you can get crossfit friends and just talk about crossfit the entire time i think it means that's a cult too bro
1: <laughs> anyway so um <laughs> Uh, so she had mentioned to me that maybe I should take on a, a, a subcommittee position,
3: hmm. okay. doing
1: um, activities, um, hosting and putting together events for the community down here. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got some skills to do that. I mean, I'm in college and, you know, I'm going for this associates of arts degree. I mean, I can I can. I can do some leadership stuff. Our sure. skills, yeah, I've yeah. Got skills. I got
3: skills.
1: And so that was really my I put both feet into doing some service work mm-hmm. and I started um, putting together big events, actually really big events. Um, there's one huge event that one of the 12 steps committee or communities does down here and there's people from all over the state that come and there's anywhere from 150 to 200 people for a three day event and I'm coordinating that with other recovering addicts and I tell you what it is hard it is like herding cats to get people to work together on certain things and so that's really where I got that buffer I needed and my recovery just sprang from that point. I mean, I was super involved in everything. I always had a weekend booked with either a committee or doing step work with somebody or going to an event with my significant other. Um, And I was dragging my little sister to all this stuff. And, you know, she'd already been kind of exposed to it, but it was cool to just see that piece for her, too, because she learned so many skills that she hadn't learned at that point and at that point she was about 16 and um my mom sent her up to live with me full-time at that point so here i am because your
2: mom was continuing to
1: my mom was
2: kind of on and off the
1: it's kind of it's a little okay. bit longer of a backstory sure. but um she was living with me and your um, sister was yeah so my right, sister right, was right, right. she was 16 uh junior in high school. You know, wrong boy, blah, blah, blah. Mom decided, you're out of control, you need to go live with your sister. It's kind of like deja vu. She sent me away at 15, you're out of control, you gotta go live with your grandma. I'm like, wow, where have I seen this before? So my sister came to live with me and she's seen me go to school full time. She's seen me do all these activities, being super involved in the Recovery community, super involved in um, my marriage, and she's like, I'm going to get a job, and I was like, awesome, get a job, and so she's doing super good, she's working nights at McDonald's, I'm like super proud of her, I'm like, way to go, and you know, she's like, I'm tired, I don't want to go to school, and I had this philosophy, and I was like, check it out, if you want to act like the big girls, and play like the big girls, then you have to do all of it. You can't just not go to school and go to work. Like, this isn't going to fly. And we had this really good relationship going. Um, so a few months later, she's doing great. I'm doing great. We're both working nights. I'm working nights at the hospital. She's working nights at McDonald's. Um, we had both gotten off work and we were going to go fishing because we do a lot of fishing in the summer. I do a lot of outdoor outdoor stuff. Like I love hiking. I love fishing. I learned learned hobbies, yeah. activities to do that don't aren't centered around using. You spend your
0: time with something I suppose.
1: Well. well, I mean, I could sit on the couch, but I choose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was like, well, I'm going to go to this women's meeting. Um, do you want to come with? And then we'll just go fishing afterwards. We'll just throw everything in the trunk and we'll go. And she's like, no, no, I'll get my friend to pick me up and I'll, I'll meet you at the club and then we'll just go. And I was like, cool. Well, long story short, she was with some kid driving on the escape route to meet me and she was in a car accident. And um, it was super traumatic for her and for me because I came up on the scene. They life flighted her to Anchorage. Um, She shattered four of her vertebrae in her back. And we're talking about a girl who's a state championship dancer. Like she lived to dance. I mean, her calf muscles and her thigh muscles, holy buckets, that girl has some serious leg power. Um, You know, we would go running together, lots of cool stuff. She is a functioning quadriplegic now. So at 17 years old she became paralyzed from the waist down. Um, That was really hard. Um, So she went to Oregon for a few months to do rehabilitation and um, some people in the fellowship Helped me remodel my house so that it was handicap accessible. And after about four months she came back to live with me and at the time I was still going to school full-time, still working full-time and now I'm caring for my little sister (coughs) full-time. My wife and I had to get up every two hours to rotate her so that she would get bed sores a lot of things that you never imagined you'd have to do, I had to do. And um, looking back on it today, I'm really grateful for my recovery because I was able to do those things. And I I feel that I got a lot of strength from watching her go through that. And she got a lot of strength watching me care for her. And um, she graduated high school. It was intense. There was a lot of physical therapy, a lot of things that were really horrible. Um, So I was going to work caring for people. I was at home caring for people. I was going to school full time. I had no time for myself and I was drowning. I kept saying to my wife, I need a break. And she would just push it off and she was like, Oh, you're fine. You're fine, and I'm like, no, I need a, I need a timeout. I need a break. I need a break. And it was like no one was hearing me, and I felt trapped, and I got really suicidal, and I ended up at Providence. Yeah. I was Title Forty Seven to Providence at seven years clean.
3: Yeah.
1: And it finally, hit that, you know. The 12-step program is awesome, but once again, that's just a symptom of my problem. I do have other issues that I need to deal with, and um, where I started seeking outside help. Um, there's a couple of different resources I tried. The White Raven Center in Anchorage. If you've never heard of it, it's amazing for PTSD. It's alternative it has helped me though, um, I, uh, yeah, lots of stuff, lots of stuff with that, and, um, the recovery community just embraced me and loved me, and they really taught me that it's okay to be human, and they, they even, you know, teach that there's things that we need outside help for, um, during that time. Right before my sister's accident my grandfather had passed away and I was his hospice nurse so I went through grief with that also so it was just like bam 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 all this compounded grief um, all the compounded grief from being a CNA I've seen hundreds of people pass away you don't just push that away you don't just brush that off all these things have changed me um, And so now I grow from them instead of running from them. I was really afraid to touch on all that pain because I thought that it would kill me Um, until I had no other choice. It was literally, I kill myself or I get high, and I absolutely refused to get high. I was like, I will not get high. I would rather just go down on my own accord than allow drugs or alcohol to take me down. And so I walked through that pain, and um, yeah, uh, a year and a half ago, I was, uh, okay, just a little bit back up, just during this whole time period, you know, I'm wanting that white picket fence and the kids to fill the home and um, find out I can't have kids. And my wife doesn't want to have kids because, well, she's 10 years older than I am. And I'm like, I want freaking kids, man. Like, I want kids. I want to go through the whole thing. Like, being pregnant, all that stuff. Like, I'm stable enough. So, fertility treatment after fertility treatment. Like, it was pretty horrific. My hair was falling out. Like, it was bad. Um, that never happened. I tried fertility treatments for three years. Um... So all these things came to a head and um, all of a sudden I get this phone call from my wife and she's like, my second cousin, you know, my aunt's dying and she's caring for my second cousin and my second cousin is six and if we don't take her, she's going to go into foster care. And I was like, oh hell no, we're taking her, she's ours and within a week she was on my doorstep the cutest little kid I've ever seen in my life um and I just I was like oh I'm your mom that's it and so it's been kind of an adjustment for her and we've got to both work through our own grief because you know her primary mother figure passed away from cancer and um right after I got her and about six months later, um, my father died of a massive heart attack at the age of 51. And that was just a little over a year ago. Um, at that point, he had been living in Nikiski and my house was in Nikiski, so we really weren't that far apart. And that, that last year before he died, we spent a lot of time together and I really got to build a relationship with him and he was just starting to get to know my daughter. Just starting to get to know her. Actually, the day that he passed, he took her on her first grandpa-granddaughter date. They really? went and saw A Wrinkle in Time. They went oh, to the movies. Wow! And my dad had dropped Omira off, my daughter off with me at the women's meeting. And I got a call 40 minutes later that the ambulance was at my dad's house and that he was being transported to the hospital. Um, I went back to the room when they were conducting CPR on him. And of course, once again, I took it upon myself to be tasked with the hard questions. How long has he been down? Have you had any sinus rhythm? Like, all those questions that, you know, my family doesn't know. They're freaking clueless. No, no, no. I said, you need to stop CPR. You need to be done. Because it had been 20 minutes. I'm like, no. he. This is not what he wants. He wanted to go on his own terms and you need to stop and um, yeah that happened a year ago um, last Monday. Wow. Grief has been my biggest teacher and no one gets out alive. Um, recovery has shown me how to be gentle with myself how to be gentle with others and really how to just cherish the life that I have um, and not take it for granted and take care of myself and the people around me to the best of my ability. Um, The position I currently work now I've had for the last three years and um, I kind of just fell into my lap, wasn't really expecting it, Um, but I chose it because I wanted to help people. So, um, kind of where we're at today, really. Um, yeah.
4: If you could, if you could go back, um, and talk to yourself, maybe at the beginning of your recovery or at a key point, what do you think you would say? Like, what, what kind of advice would you give yourself of like, hey, this will really help if you,
1: you know. Don't worry about what other people think. Hmm. Be gentle with yourself. Mm. Those are probably the two biggest things. Yeah. Don't be so serious and play more.
0: Yeah.
1: My kid has definitely taught me how to play. Like <laughs> we get down in the mud puddles. Like I I I will put on some rubber boots. I got extra tufts in my truck right now. <laughs> and we will go play in a mud puddle. And yeah. yeah
4: is it just, I know you'd mentioned, um, that kind of this process of, um, growing up, like you said, you kind of been fighting it. Like you don't want to grow up. Like you said, you were pounding on the high chair. No, I don't want to grow up. But is it the kind of play that you're experiencing now? Is it, is it more wholesome in a way? Is it a different kind of play? Like not trying to avoid responsibility sort of play?
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's the childlike play. the, the, Having fun to have fun. Not gotcha. having fun to numb something out or mm. to hide from something.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, having fun and not worrying about who's going to see it. Yeah. So, yeah. And just kind of teaching my kid those things. And realizing, trying to break that cycle um, of addiction. Because she's got it in her genes, too. Mm. And um, that's probably my biggest fear today, it's like, oh man, if I can give you any coping tools right now, like, I'm just going to lay it on thick and we're going to have fun in the process. I mean, Mm. yeah, she got in trouble the other day, she made it a not so good decision and so we had a little talk about consequences and thinking before we act. Like those are things that I'm sure my mom maybe said to me and my dad maybe said to me. I was just trying a different approach today, Mm -hmm. and actually using the things that I've learned in recovery to do that.
0: Tell her to play the tape for
1: me. Yeah, but in seven-year-old terms. Yeah. Not adult terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, seven-year-olds are like, "What do you mean, play the tape for?" (laughs) What's a tape? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) What's a tape? (laughs) No. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's cool sometimes I feel that I've still missed out on a lot of things, but today I'm... I don't know. I'm willing to take out the fine china and use it, and that's really all I can hope for.
2: Did you... uh, What were your... Because I think some people, um, when they are in the early processes of getting clean, um, you know, have you know, strong urges to use quite, uh, quite consistently, Mm -hmm. even. Um, and then, you know, I've heard, like, some people say, oh, those, those go away, or those lessen. What have your, what have your experiences been with those types of urges?
1: I still get urges. Yeah. Um, I have to check in with myself. Like, hey, why, why do I want to use right now? Am I, I mean, we use like some, I'm trying not to use like psychobabble terms because I'm just not, but, um, what's not right with you right now? What's, what's really going on? Sometimes it's because I'm not getting my way or there's some sort of thing that I'm neglecting. Um, Really simple, we use halt, hangry angry yeah angry (laughs) angry is a word It is. hungry angry lonely or tired right now sitting here I am hungry and I'm tired Mm -hmm. so I know oh and I'm gonna be going to work after this so I have to be gentle on myself and um, just be aware Mm -hmm. and use I mean I guess the, the coping tools I have today, like my toolbox, like I should just have a whole tool shed at this point. I really hope I have a whole tool shed at this point of things that I can use to, to distract myself until that obsession has lifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the beginning, I might have only had like one or two tools that I could have used, one or two phone numbers, but really that's where everybody starts. You know, I, I believe that the more supports you have around you and um, the more application and the ways of applying those supports have been super key to my recovery. Yeah.
2: Um, so it sounds like those first uh, those first five years or so, you were really maybe taking on more than you were uh you know, kind of ready to take on? Would you, I, I mean, I know each person's recovery is going to be a little bit differently, but would you maybe recommend to some people to just realize that they're still human? You know? Yeah. Sounds like maybe that's...
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a fine line there, though, too. Because um, I could use I'm human as an excuse also.
2: Yeah, sure.
1: Um, it's hard sure. because this isn't a cookie-cutter process. Right, right. You know, I didn't come into recovery having kids or um, some of the other factors. Just like other people out there don't have the same situation as me. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to necessarily pinpoint what someone should do. I do know what was taught to me was don't quit quitting. Go to a meeting every chance you get for 90 days 90 meetings in 90 days because it takes, and the reason they say that is because it takes 90 days to form a habit like there's actually some serious thought behind that it's not just fluff and puff for telling you this like it takes 90 days to form a habit plus you get in the routine of knowing where every meeting is at every point in time it becomes another tool you know if, if something horrible has just happened I can look at my watch and go oh There's a meeting down the street in 10 minutes. i better get my butt there because I'm literally shaky right now.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: So there's that. There's to get connected. Find somebody that has something that you want. And um, be as honest as you can. Be open to learning new things and be willing to actually take action and do them. Mm -hmm. Because I can sit here all day and say that I want recovery, but I actually have to do recovery. Mm -hmm. Wanting and doing are two very different things. Sure. And I mean, I, through my story, I've shared that the doing part has definitely grown and changed. Because in the beginning, if I was to do now what I did in the beginning, I, I don't believe that the do part would uh, was enough. Mm-hmm. So,
2: yeah. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for kind of sharing your story mm-hmm. with us. Uh, it is, uh, congrats on having 10 years now and getting kind of getting uh getting it together pretty early you know 20 years old that's uh that's impressive really to I mean I'm, I'm sure you're not the only one but it doesn't seem to be the norm that somebody really gets it all together at that age I know that it can't be well it was not easy um
1: I definitely don't have it all together.
2: Right, right. But mm-hmm. And, sure.
1: and I, I just want to point out that life is lifey. And, like, that's, like I said in the beginning, that my addiction doesn't define who I am today. Mm-hmm. I have way more facets to who I am. Because mm-hmm. I do interact with more than just the recovery community today. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I also do some nonprofit stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Just throwing that out.
2: Yeah, so I guess uh, before we before we wrap up, it sounds kind of like when did that when did addiction somewhat stop defining your life? Because it really it sounds like in the first, you know, even maybe few years, it kind of did, you know, um, and maybe and it probably needed to, you know, okay. for you to really address what was going on because maybe it didn't define your life but it was consuming your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? Your addiction was consuming yeah. it.
1: And honestly, in all fairness, my recovery had to consume my right, life for the first right, right. Too. Um, it, I started to notice it at about three years of your recovery, but I didn't actually step out into the world of there might actually be something more to me than just addiction at about than age seven. trying to avoid, yeah. trying to handle
2: your disease, right? Yeah, about age right.
1: seven of my recovery when I when life got really bad. Yeah. In recovery. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
2: know, so. Makes sense. hmm
1: I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. I'm there's Cause there.
2: Because th- I think maybe this is somewhat of a, uh, as we've heard it before, you know, people are like, oh, if I Like, and yeah, the number one thing is when you're entering your recovery, t- you know, is like, I need to not do drugs or alcohol. hmm I need to not do drugs or alcohol. However, that that can't be the one and only thing one does because as we've heard before, it was something like this, this, uh, it's like, what do you do? What do you got when you uh, sober up a horse thief? You just have a sober horse thief. You know, you gotta learn yeah. to stop being a horse thief. Well, like you gotta learn to live, right?
1: Right, and then that, and that's actually a big part that I believe some people miss is the 12 steps Step six and seven are all about that. Learning to live, right? All about learning about your character defects. It's like so your now, shortcomings. what? Right? Yeah. 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 What's actually freaking? What? are... <laughs> what's some things that you need to work on? Sure.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and and some people work on those, and some people don't. And it's not necessarily that they work on them, but they allow their higher power to work on them, and that's kind of getting into that step. But sure. Yeah, that's where, like this program separates, like, they say the boys from the men and the girls from the women. Like, you're either going to grow or you're going to go. Sure. You know, and and I I can only speak for me. Personally, I feel that simply abstinence is not enough for me today. Some people, it is enough. For me, not so much. And so... You know, that's kind of where that line... Because there really are people that that's... That's it. They just want to abstain from use. They... But there's that other piece is... If if you live dirty long enough, if you're clean and you live dirty, eventually you're not going to be clean anymore. Sure. So
2: living
1: dirty doesn't really work when you're trying to be clean. Right. A lot of these little, like, sayings have its metaphors. The, yeah, the backstories are different.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, because it sounds like you. I mean, you were plugged into to your recovery and I'd say more than abstinence at the seven year point.
3: Yeah.
2: However, I am kind of struck by this. Uh, you end up, you know, at somewhat rock bottom. Mm-hmm. in recovery yeah and you're like dang this isn't working either you know like i'm still at rock bottom it's just a little different and it's it's better right i mean it's a better one but it's still freaking no rough.
1: i felt the same way okay when i hit that bottom at yeah. seven years clean as i did when i the day i stopped using yeah i had that same feeling wow. in the pit of my stomach
2: yeah um,
1: yeah and it, it I attribute a lot of it to life, and I attribute a lot of it to the fact that there were areas that I hadn't looked at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was because I was afraid mm-hmm. to look at them.
2: Yeah, I guess to continue with some kind of metaphor that may not really hold up necessarily, but you hit rock bottom before as a drunken horse thief. But if this horse thief kind of thing is the one that's leading you to rock bottom, you're still there. You know, You're just sober. Yeah. And so it's just interesting that, like, eventually, so yeah, recovery does somewhat consume one's life for a while, but eventually it begins to look a little bit differently. You uh-huh. know, you learn to, you got to learn to live in other ways as well. Well,
1: and that's that big part of how this disease is insidious. Hmm. It manifests itself. Just They say just as you're learning about recovery, your disease is learning about how to discount it. Hmm or take advantage of what you're doing and that's a scary reality i mean my mom going out after 20 years like i'm like what in the Mm -hmm. you know i i see it now yeah i totally see it well we do this thing called uh clean time countdown where during events and stuff um we count down from the person in the room that has the most clean time to the person that has the least amount of clean time and the person that has the least amount of clean time like we we huddle up around him and like really encourage him or whatever it's evident and it's said that between 5 and 10 years people will back out and i can attest to that cuz it's 7 years so be- between years 1 and years four, there's, like, a ton of people. But you get to that five-year mark, there might be one person. Really? Yeah. Six-year yeah. mark, there might not be anybody. Yeah. Seven-year mark, one person. Eight-year mark, maybe one. Up to ten, there might only be four people.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so on and so forth, like. Yeah. And and that's not necessarily that people have relapsed. I mean, quite a bit of it is people have relapsed. and But the other part of that is some people... Stop that portion of Mm -hmm. the recovery process, Mm -hmm. um, which is unfortunate because we need that experience to help newer people too, and that's a huge part of why I stay plugged in. Yeah, you know, it's not all about me today, right? But I do have those other areas of my life that balance that part out.
2: That's interesting, it is, it is, it's uh, like that abstaining doesn't necessarily do it for you but also like being consumed because you were like pretty well consumed by your recovery and it still was like so there's like a balance between you know letting it somewhat you know really be a role in your life but also as you've said you know it's multi-dimensional at this point you know there are more dimensions to you than just your you know addiction um, So. I mean, and in other ways, you know maybe it just works a little bit differently for other people, but however, as you've pointed out you know the the disease is uh, right when you think you maybe fully have it licked is when it's is when it's a problem so um, yeah, interesting questions to uh, think about um, so thank you so much for sharing you know what's really been a a long road of recovery, you know. At this point, Thanks, ten guys. years. Um, mm-hmm. So thank you so much. This is uh, Heidi's story um, here with uh, Eric and Aaron and Coburn. You and I for the keynote.